So can anybody guess what's transpired here? Anybody want to be bold enough to say it? Well, Bill, you got your hand up back there. Yes, so that heartbeat, the baby's mother had actually uh, died during childbirth. And the man that, that the baby became calm with was the recipient of the mother's heart. And there you see the baby, despite the fact that the baby had been passed around to so many people who had held the baby tenderly. You know, I kept on thinking, oh, that's got to be the grandmother. The baby will be happy. But, but the baby would wrestle and whatever. But it wasn't until it saw or, or it heard the heartbeat that it had listened to for so many months, the heartbeat involved in its creation, that it, was, that it had calmed down and was actually reaching out. You know, I've, when I first saw this commercial, because it's a commercial to try to encourage uh, donors, when I first saw it, it made me really think about myself and about about God's heartbeat. And do I really hear it? And do I actually press in to understand God's heartbeat? You know, Pastor Ian's been doing uh, these series on the stories that uh, God told, or, or that Jesus told, rather. And on the surface, all of those stories uh, seem, can, can seem kind of simple. But they really are intended for us to know the Father's heart and, and the Father's character. You know, stories are metaphors about life that we might get to sort of know God better, know people around us, even, even to know ourselves uh, better. I don't know about you, but some of the stories that uh, have been shared, some of the metaphors that have been shared, I, they, they've kind of pricked my heart. They've, I felt a little convicted in some of them. I felt a little uncomfortable. But I have to say that I also felt that I learned a little bit about uh, God in every single one of them. Just recently I was talking to someone and they said, oh, you know that Jesus is the hero of every song or, or every story or every parable. I'm not sure if that is the case. But I think in, this, in, the, in the parable that we're going to hear today, the story uh, that we're going to hear today, um, you will um, uh, see that I think Jesus is the hero of the story. Some of you today might have some cards uh, or, or a piece of paper th that you've got with some numbers on them. If you've got one of those pieces of paper, would you um, call out uh, the, the word you have on, uh, on that piece of paper? Because what you're about to hear are some of the attributes of God. So whoever has number one. Self-existent, yeah. We missed one. Did, okay. So all of these are um, sort of characteristics of, of, of God's attributes. In this, a couple of weeks ago, I was doing an interview at our head office for, it was an ordination interview. And there's a group of us that will... Uh, 
meet with the potential uh, pastors and basically go through some things with them. Try to understand what their what their prayer life is like. Uh, you know what they um, you know how their relationships are and also what's their theology. What do they understand? And one of the things that I really enjoyed was uh, the one fellow that we were doing, when we were asking him about the attributes, there's one that he said that I thought, wow. And he said, extravagant. I thought, yeah. But what was so great about it was the way in which he said it. He said it with such enthusiasm that you could tell that uh, he really knew uh, God's heart. So today, we're going to hear the, the, the story of of the minas, of the ten minas, uh, which is in Luke 19. And it parallels the story of the talents, uh, which is in Matthew 25. I'm going to suggest to you that there's going to be a couple of the attributes that we see on this screen are going to be evidenced uh, within, within this story, within, uh, within this parable. Matter of fact, I'll even mention that, that I think you'll see God's love and his justice are, are going to stand out in, in the parable. But before uh, we actually get into it, I'm going to actually ask uh, Peggy to actually uh, read the parable to us, just as if, you know, the, the disciples are listening to Jesus and he's, and he's telling them the parable. But let's put it in context a little bit so you can picture it in your mind's eye about what's going on. So Jesus and his disciples are leaving uh, Jericho. They've been in Jericho, and there they had uh, run into uh, blind Bartimaeus, and uh, Jesus had uh, healed his sight. They went and they had dinner with Zacchaeus. And there Zacchaeus said, you know what, he repented for the way he was living. And, uh, and then right there Jesus said, as for him and his, and his household, they have salvation has come to them this day. So they were leaving Jericho, and they were heading to Jerusalem. And the road between uh, Jericho and Jerusalem is a tough road. I've actually been on it uh, in a bus. I've traveled it. But the, the road itself is a narrow dirt road that follows along the crest uh, of some hills going through the Judean wilderness. You know, they talk about the Judean wilderness, you know, uh, where I'm dry and weary and, and, and there is no water. They'll have some. But there's no shade. There's no shade along that road. There's a, almost like a cliff on the one side. There's a big chasm down the other side. Matter of fact, this is the same road that Jesus used in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where, where he talks about where the man was robbed and beaten on that road. This is the same notorious road. Jericho is actually below sea level. It's about 800 feet below sea level. And it's about a 3,300-foot 3, climb, 22 kilometers, Eight hours. So this is a so this is this is a, a, a tough walk. But what we see just as we're getting into the story, um, the disciples and Jesus are approaching Jerusalem. Now we don't know what they talked about for the eight hours as they walked along, but uh, maybe what they had talked about is kind of what uh, uh, prompted him to tell this story, because. Jesus knew that very shortly he was going to ask them, go fetch the colt that hasn't been ridden before because he knew that he was about to make his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. So with that stage set, Peggy, could you uh, read the... 
while he had their attention and because they were getting close to Jerusalem by this time and expectation was building that God's kingdom would appear any minute, he told this story. There once was a man descended from a royal house who needed to make a long trip back to headquarters to get authorization for his rule and then return. But first he called ten servants together, gave them each a sum of money, and instructed them, Operate with this until I return. But the citizens there hated him. So they sent a commission with a signed petition to oppose his rule, saying, We don't want this man to rule us. When he came back, bringing the authorization of his rule, he called those ten servants to whom he had given the money to find out how they had done. The first one said, Master, I've doubled your money. He said, Good servant, great work, because you've been trustworthy in this small job. I'm making you governor over ten towns. The second one said, Master, I made a 50% profit on your money. He said, Ah, I'm putting you in charge of five towns. The next servant said, Master, uh, here's your money safe and sound. I kept it hidden in the cellar. To tell you the truth, I was a little afraid. I know you have high standards, and you hate sloppiness, and you don't suffer fools gladly. And then the master said, you're right. I don't suffer fools gladly, and you've acted the fool. Why didn't you at least invest the money in securities so that I have gotten a little interest on it? And then he said, to those standing there, take the money from him and give it to the servant who doubled my stake. They said, but master, he already has double. He said, that's what I mean. Risk your life and you get more than you ever dreamed of. Play it safe and you end up holding the bag. And as for these enemies of mine who petitioned against my rule, clear them out of here. I don't want to see their faces around here again. So let's unpack uh, some, of what, some of what we've heard and some of the messages in this story. So as you've noted in, the, in what uh, Peggy shared, it was from the Message Bible. I'm doing something a little bit different today in the fact that I'm also be- below the uh, the actual text from the message, I've in- included the text in French uh, from La Bible de Sommeur. For, for, for those of us here, that French is your first language, just so that uh, you can uh, see the, see, enjoy the text today. Now, this text, again, which is where we hear about them just starting off, it reminds me of something that, that the Lord did in 586 B.C., and that was when the Babylonians had attacked and destroyed Jerusalem. And, he, and, and, the, and the captives were, were, were going along the road. And through, through the prophet Jeremiah, uh, the Lord sent word to them and said, You know what? Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat the fruit of it. Uh, marry and let your children be married. Really what he was saying to them you know, he was telling them, don't expect to be coming back soon. You know, he says, because I know the plans I, f- I have for you to give you a hope and a future. He said to them, things are going to be rough, but I'll never leave you. I love you, and I want you to know it. So when Luke, in this, in, in this part of the scripture here, uh, 
Jesus is telling his disciples, he's giving them a similar heads up. He, because he knew what was ahead. He knew uh, that he was about to ride into Jerusalem on that donkey with the expectations of people, and they were all excited that he would be the Messiah, that he was the Messiah, and that he would be physically overthrowing the Romans, and that Israel would be in that place in the world where they would control the world. He knew there'd be euphoria that Palm Sunday as, as they waved the palms, Hosanna, Hosanna. He knew that would be the case as he rode into Jerusalem. But he also knew that a week later that he would be crucified and that his disciples were about to scatter. So he tells them a story about a, a, about a man descended from a royal house who has to return home to get his authorization, get his author, authority. But he's going to come back to rule again. But before he goes, he calls ten servants. And he says he's going to give them uh, a sum of money. Amina. $30,000, by the way, in today's money. That's what it would have been. Amina it would be worth $30,000 today. And he says to them, you know, operate with this or engage in business until I return. You know, sitting here today, 2,000 years later, you know, we kind of can see what he, was, uh, what he was doing there as far as him, uh, the, the message he was really telling them. He was saying, hey, boys, you know, things aren't going to go the way that you think that, that, that they are. You know, yes, I will be going in, into Jerusalem, but I won't be there for long. In the meantime, occupy the land. Be good stewards of all that I entrust to you. So Jesus is displaying his loving character here. So, so he's, he's preparing them so that their misconceptions won't be a complete shock to them, and he's giving them uh, a, a hope for the future. So what happens when he returns? The first servant comes in and says, I doubled your money. Most versions say 10 times. And how does the, the master react? Good servant, good work. I'm making you governor over 10 towns. Now notice he doesn't say, I'm going to give you more money. He doesn't say, oh, I'm going to give you a whole pile more, more, uh, more money. He says, I'm going to give you more people. I'm going to give you 10 towns worth of people. Yes, there is money that's involved. But the master says, I'm going to make you governor of ten towns. Because God cares more about people than he cares about the money. He owns everything in the world. This is, it seems like an extravagant characteristic. Where he is saying to somebody, oh, you've managed the money? Now I'm going to ask you to govern ten towns worth of, worth of people. You know, he says, you've been trustworthy in what I gave you. Y yes, it was about the money. But it was also about his attitude. It was, he understood the expectations. He knew that the, what the master's heart was. You know, he wanted him to be fruitful so that it would be able to be a, a benefit. He entrusted him with, with knowledge, with relationships, and with resources, just like he does with us. To whom much is given, much is required. I'm going to skip the second servant only because, 
what happens with him is really the same as the, uh, as the first servant, but to a different degree. And actually, I, I thought it was interesting that even Jesus, as, as he tells the story, he talks about ten servants, but he only tells us about three. This servant was different. He had a different perspective on the master. He says, I was afraid. I knew you had high standards and that you don't take kindly to fools. Some versions say, I knew you were a hard man. And that term hard, actually the Greek, the, the Greek word that's used there is the word austerios, which is the, root, is the root of it is where we get austere. Meaning, and it actually, the actual meaning of it means having strict or high standards. So here's a guy that doesn't really know God's heart. You know, he fears a just God. Uh, he doesn't use at all what the master has, has, has given him. So the master takes from him and gives it to the guy who was the most fruitful of all of the servants. You know, he said, why did you not use that I gave to you so that it could be beneficial? We see the master being both loving and just in this situation. Loving in the fact that now he's taking what's there so that it's giving to someone who, who can use it to be fruitful for other people. And just that he was taking it from, from the, uh, the man who had not been fruitful. We live sometimes in these tensions. I don't know whether, uh, one of my favorite scriptures is, is, is Ephesians 4, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you are saved, not of works, lest any, any person should boast. When I was in China, some of the friends I met there ensured that. That was one they struggled with, because as, as a society, it tends to be you have to work for everything you do. And I kind of grew up that way with, with my dad. But then you read in James, you know, I love the fact that it's by grace. It's by God's loving and gracious character. You know, that was fantastic. You don't have to earn it. You just have to trust in him, love him. But then in James it says, too, it says, faith without works is dead. Well, how can both be true? If it's by grace, if it's by, only by God's love, then, then why is faith without works dead? Because faith is a verb. You know, it's not like saying, ah, yes, I have faith that there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's water in here. It's not like that. It's, the, it, it's a verb to say, I, I have faith. I continue uh, to, to believe. You know, this is something that, you know, God, God expects us to be able to understand uh, some of these things that appear to be contradictions, but they're not. You know, he has given us knowledge. He has given us relationships and resources. For us, for us believers, we have the knowledge of who Jesus is. What an opportunity to be able to share that, to be able to bless others. He's given us relationships that we have influence, whether, whether it be, you know, our family members. I remember a teacher, Miss Moss, uh, when I was in grade three. She had never married, but she influenced. The way she supported me when I was so insecure in that classroom, it, it changed me. Because, because, so, so that, and that relationship. And then our resources, whether it be our funds or our time or whatever. You know, do we think of, oh, this is just mine. I, I, can, I, I can just use it. God, God gives, gives us these things. One important element I want you to notice here. This guy was not cast out from God. 
what he had was given to a person who was, who was more fruitful. But he himself was not cast out. He lost the opportunity of doing uh, what he could. You know, between these two, to be honest with you, I could probably relate more to this guy, to where the Lord blesses, has, has blessed me at different times with different things. I remember once specifically in 1993, uh, I was a, uh, a partner in a, uh, in, a, in a business making industrial batteries. And one uh, February night, my partner disappeared in the night. He left. I didn't even know where he had gone. He didn't tell me. But I, here's one thing that I knew, is that our company owed a lot of money. So after I, my late wife and I, we sold our house, we cashed out all of our RRSPs, we um, sold her car, a lot of our furniture, and after having done all that, we were still nearly a half a million dollars in debt. And I'm saying to myself, but God, I'm a Christian. You know, I, you know, I, I, I pray. I, you know, I give money to church and to some charities. You know, and, and I had to really wonder. But I hadn't really been listening to God at all. I got in, involved with the business because it looked like it had such a great, easy way of a, of a return on money. I was being greedy at the time. And I, when I was asking God what was going on, my late wife and I, we, we repented. We were brokenhearted over our attitudes ab about how, how we had viewed the resources that the Lord had, had, had given us, our skills and, and resources. Do you know what happened? The Lord did a miraculous thing. Shortly after, after, our, after this, and I'd taken a job doing, working in a warehouse and things, and... Um, all of a sudden, I got a phone call. One of the phone calls I got was from a household finance, a finance company. And they said, Brian, you know that debt that you owe us? It's forgiven. And then over the next little while, many of those kind of things happened where, where so much of that debt uh, was wiped out. Some investments that I made during that period of time did really well. And in seven years, that entire uh, thing was wiped out. Now, I don't, say that, I don't tell you that story to be boastful or in, 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 in any way, but just to, to let you know that this guy who wasn't a good steward was, you know, uh, not alone in, in the way sometimes that we are. And God is a God of second chances. It doesn't matter. God is a God of second chances. Now, not everything turns out this way. For five years, I've been, been asking God, you know, what did I crush my left eye and when is that going to get healed? But that doesn't change the character or the nature of God. He is still, uh, you know, the, the, the same. He is still loving and just and, and trustworthy. This, paral this, this parable has, has, the, has a parallel one, of course, as we've talked about in Matthew 25. Probably the more famous of the two. You kind of hear more about the parable of the talents than you do of the minas. And that parable is interesting in the fact that it's sort of sandwiched between two other parables. The, the one parable is, is the parable of the ten virgins. And the other one is that is the story of the final judgment. And the, in the story of the, uh, of the ten virgins, it's really about being, being watchful and being alert and watching you know, for, for the master who's returning. Like in this story, the master says, you know, he will be coming back. 
And then the story of the final judgment is really about, you know, uh, what you did for the least of these, that you did unto me. I love that. And, but what ends up happening, of course, in that is that the obedient go on to eternal life and the disobedient, those who rejected God, went on uh, to be eternally away from his presence. And this is what we see in verse 27, the, the, the last verse in this parable. You know, those who, who, who deny and strive against the master. You know, if we reflect back on what Peggy read, and maybe it's hard to remember, but in verse 14, it reads like this. But the citizens there hated him. So they sent a commission with a signed petition to oppose his rule. They said, we don't want ma this man to rule us. When I read this, it kind of reminds me of some of the laws that get enacted that says, no, you know, we, we cannot be Christians. We cannot praise God with what we believe. You know, we don't want this man to rule us. In the final judgment, those who reject God will those who will also be rejected. It's one of these tensions that we talk about. God gives us free will and says, you know, I set before you life, life and death, blessings and cursing, so choose life. So he gives us the choice to be in relationship with him, to know him and to love him. But he also gives us a choice to, re to not do that, to reject him. To be, but it has eternal consequences. That's his justice, because he has made it clear. He hasn't left it there. His justice is very evident, and so is his extravagant love. How sweet it is for us to be able to hear and know God's heartbeat, to be able to know his character and his, his attributes. My prayer is that, that others may hear God's heartbeat in you. I pray that we're all as joyful as that baby was, reaching out and almost being ecstatic at, at, at knowing that that was the heartbeat. That so what I'd like to do now for a few minutes, oh, that was the other verse, is I'd like you to where you're sitting with people around you, if you don't have somebody around you, take a few minutes. We're going to take about maybe three minutes and think about either aspects of this story that we've, that we've just you know, talked about a little bit or some of those um, attributes of, God's, uh, of who God is. And just share with each other, each other for a few minutes and then we will get together for, uh, for a little praise and worship. So I encourage you to just take a moment and just share with somebody around you uh, e either some of these characteristics, the attributes of God, or some aspect of this story that uh, uh, spoke to you. <laughs>